Welcome to the Reach Podcast with your pastor, Philip Jackson. Today's a special day for me. Four years ago, 2018, on October the 28th, I was ordained into the ministry. And my first official day as a pastor was November the 1st. Uh, 2018. Yeah. So today is my fourth anniversary as a pastor. Um, I didn't put it together until just now when I'm standing back there um, that I'm talking about influence tonight. Um, a very wise person once told me, an old mentor of mine, that leadership is influence through service. And this is what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about the simple yet profound principle of helping other people win. A a leader um, is a servant. This year has been the year of the servant, um, and I don't know if you have recognized this or not, but this really has been the year of the leader, not really the the year of the servant. Um, our theme verse, I actually, again, I didn't mean to wear this today, uh, but our theme verse for our retreat is that the greatest will be the servant, not the one who um, wants to be great, but the one who wants to be the least will be the servant. And um, in our generation, influence is one of those things uh, that is sought after, it's chased after, um, because we want to feel important, we want to feel valuable. We want to validate ourselves. It's a, it's a perfectly natural part of being a human being. Um, but the challenge is that the world sees influence differently than, than God does. Uh, the world sees influence much differently than God's Word does. And if we are going to uh, approach our generation in a serious way and in truth, we need to understand exactly what it is that God's Word says about influence. Now, over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the book of Acts, and we've been looking at... Uh, this fledgling community that God has begun to put together through the preaching of the apostles. We started to see some persecution. And last week we saw the apostles get arrested and thrown in jail. And the, uh, the religious leaders were uh, trying to figure out what to do with them. And so they commanded them to not preach the name of Jesus anymore. And they beat them and then, and then they turned them loose on their way. And they counted themselves um, uh, glad and joyous that they were able to suffer for the sake of Christ. Um, and they didn't cease teaching. They kept, they kept teaching. Well, what we're going to look at tonight, if you have your Bible, turn over to Acts chapter 6. We're going to look at um, the very first time that we see leadership shift away from the apostles into everyday average people. The Oxford Dictionary uh, defines influence as this, the capacity to have an effect on the character, development, or behavior of someone or something, or the effect itself. Um. In 2015, the old English adverb influencer began to describe people who worked on social media by cultivating a following and promoting products. In our generation, an influencer is someone who makes money online. Um, and they, they cultivate a following, they cultivate a community around them and their personality, and they sell stuff. Uh, in fact, it's a massive business. The influencer industry online um, has grown since 2009 and is now believed to be worth over $16 billion. That is one and a half times the size of the budget of the state of Oklahoma. That's a lot of money. 
the highest paid social media influencer is a guy named Cristiano Ronaldo. You may have heard of him. He's a Portuguese soccer player. He charges between $880,000 and $1 million per post on Instagram. It's a lot of money to be able just to post a picture. One of the most profound things for us that we need to understand is that um, God's concept of influence is, is rooted in godly love. If you've been in, around the church for any amount of time, you've heard the definitions of the different kinds of love from the Greek language. We have phileo love, which is the brotherly love. Um, you have eros, which is erotic love or sexual love. But the most profound love that's described in the Bible is agape love. Agape love is a godly love. It's a fatherly love. And the thing that makes agape love different is that the fundamental um, drive of agape love is to see people walk with God. It's to reconcile people with God. And so to be an influencer means to be someone who makes introductions to God on a regular basis. So we're going to begin in Acts chapter 6. We're going to read all of the chapter. I'm going to read this first, these first seven verses, and then we're going to go back and we're going to break them apart, and then we'll finish the chapter here in a minute. Beginning in verse 1, it says this. Now remember, the apostles just got arrested and they got sent off after they were beaten. Verse 1, Now in those days, while the disciples were multiplying in number, there was grumbling from the Hellenists against the Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not pleasing to God for us to neglect the word of God uh, in order to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this need. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the word. And this word pleased the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they stood before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to multiply greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Okay, we're going to start here with a need for influencers. Now, I've got to explain some, some cultural things here that's happening. So, if you remember in the beginning of the, the church, what was happening is that as people's needs would come to the surface, as people would get to know what people needed, there was an automatic response to meet these needs. So people were selling their assets to cover other people's uh, bills and other people's livelihoods. And so there was this, this camaraderie around, this community around. And uh, we saw how God was protective of that community when we looked at the, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Well, within the church, in and of itself, especially in the early days, uh, it was primarily Jews. In fact, the Roman Empire didn't think that the church was anything besides a subsect of the Jewish religion for a long time until they finally realized that it was different, right? But within the church, there were two different kinds of Jews. Okay, now if you know your history, you know that the Jewish people were conquered over and over over a series of generations, and they were spread all over the world. There were some who were Jewish uh, ethnically and culturally. They lived in ancient Palestine, and they spoke Hebrew. They followed the, the Judaic laws. They were Hebraic in every part of their life. They would go to the temple and they would worship. Now, outside of that, you had different kind of Jews. These were Jews who were culturally Greek. They weren't necessarily uh, Jewish in culture, but they were Jewish ethnically, okay? So they practiced all of the things that Jews did, only in Greek, not in Hebrew. 
And so they didn't speak Hebrew for the most part. They spoke Greek. They read out of a Greek Old Testament. They, uh, they prayed in Greek. They read in Greek. They memorized in Greek. Everything was Greek. But they would come on occasion on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem uh, to, to worship at the temple. In fact, church history tells us that those people who came from around the world to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, when, at the Feast of Pentecost, when Peter stood up and he preached and 3,000 people came to faith in Christ, when they left, they planted little churches all over the world. One of those churches was in a little town called Rome. It eventually would blossom into the seed of the, of the Roman Empire. So what happened is that you have these, these uh, Greek Jews, they're called Hellenists, culturally, and then you have the uh, Hebraic Jews, the, the, the uh, ethnically Jews. Well, in the church, you have these two different groups, right? You have the, you have the Greek-speaking and the Hebrew-speaking. Well, the challenge was that you started to see that the Hebrew people who were naturally at home in Jerusalem, they were being taken care of, right? And as they were taking care of the needs and making sure everybody had food, the widows in the Jewish community were, were completely taken care of, but the Greek widows were beginning to be neglected because they didn't fit culturally. Look at how this text unfolds here. He says, Now in those days, while the disciples were multiplying in number, there was a grumbling from the Hellenists against the Hebrews. Now it's important for me to, to point this out because, because this is... Uh, part of being a human being. It says that there was grumbling from the Hellenists. Now, if we read this in a first passing, it might seem to say that the, that the Greek Jews, the Greek widows, were upset and they came to the apostles and they began to uh, complain about not getting what they needed, not getting food whenever, they would, whenever, whenever everybody would eat. But really, this text in the Greek, it actually means that they were whispering among themselves it implies that these Jewish, that these Greek Jews were actually starting to, to build resentment against the Hebrew widows and the Hebrew, the Hebrew church members that were from Jerusalem. They begin to argue back and forth. They actually don't bring it, bring their problem to the apostles. The apostles actually seek this out. They understand the division is something that's going to uh, reproduce itself. It'll spread like a weed. And so the apostles, they confront, they, they confront the situation. Now, uh, the people, as they didn't bring it to the apostles, they had to be called out. So the apostles, they understood their position and their calling, and they, they, they brought, called people to a higher standard. So that the twelve, meaning the disciples, they summoned all the congregation and the disciples together uh, in verse 2, and it says, It's not pleasing to God for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now, the point here is not that the apostles were too good to serve food or too good to take care of people they understood that they had a specific role to play within the church. And that if they did not go out of their way to be um, obedient to what God had called them to do, what Jesus had called them to do, to make disciples and teach them everything that he had commanded them, that they would be derelict in their duty. They say that it is not pleasing to God. Uh, the Greek can actually be translated literally as it doesn't fit. These shapes don't fit together. I don't know if you guys have had that little toy whenever you were a kid that had the little, it was like a circle, like a, like a sphere, and had the different shapes cut out of it. You put the little plastic blocks inside. He's saying it doesn't fit for us to do it this way. God has called us as apostles to do a specific task. And this is a, this is a, this is a divergence, as a distraction for what God's called us to do. Now notice what the, what the disciples do. They don't just automatically fix it. They provide an opportunity. The people are given ownership of their issue, and they're, and they're uh, given guidance by their leaders. 
It says in verse 3, it says, uh, Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom, whom we may put in charge of this need. Notice something here. If you've grown up in uh, the traditional Baptist church, you will you inevitably have, have come up against this, this uh, model where we have pastors of the hired help. They come in and out. They're kind of interchangeable. Um, and then you have a group of lay leaders that run the church. But, the, but what's being applied here is that the apostles never give up leadership of the church. Instead, what they do is they delegate the authority to make decisions, and they give that to the people. They say, okay, you nominate people that you trust. Let us, let us consider these names. It will provide them to the, to the body, and the body will then make a decision. This isn't leadership by committee. They are giving people an opportunity to take ownership of their ministry. One of the things that happens quite often to me is I get people who come to me and they say, PJ, here's the thing. I've got this great idea for ministry. We should do X. Now, when I first started, my tendency was, that's a great idea. I will do that. And then I ended up being like, um, oh gosh, who is it? This is, I'm a girl dad, so I've got to make this reference. So when Cinderella is, is carrying all of the dishes and she's like trying to not drop any of them in the Walt Disney major motion picture, right? She's, she's like doing everything she can skillfully to not drop the dishes. This is how I felt when I first started in ministry. Oh, that's a great, oh yeah, that's a great idea. Put that, just put that on top. I'll just, I'll take care of that too. And Pastor Nick Dyer taught me a, uh, a great phrase that now I use every day, just about. Not my monkey, not my circus, right? So here's what I have learned is that God's design is this. If someone feels convicted about a specific ministry need, my job as a pastor is not to do that job. My job as a pastor, according to Ephesians chapter 4, is to equip them to be obedient to the call that God has put on their life. Hey, PJ, I've got this great idea for ministry. That's a great idea. How can I help you do that? Now, one or two things happens. Either first they go, oh, well, um, you know, I'll pray about it. That's the most common one. The second one is uh, the one that actually fills my heart with joy where they say, oh, if we could do this, this, and this, and this, and I equip them to succeed, and they go and they, they be obedient to what God's called them to do, lives are changed. It's the coolest thing ever to see someone ignite under the passion of the Holy Spirit to be obedient to what God's called them to do. The apostles don't take on this responsibility. They delegate it. They give the people an opportunity to be able to, uh, to be obedient. And then the decision is confirmed in prayer and with the others. Look at this. Um, the apostles say, we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the word. And this word pleased the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Now these guys are, they give us some clues about the early church. So it says, notice something, all of these guys have Greek names. They all come out of the same community. So they say, hey, our, our, there's this rumor circulating around. No one's brought this to the apostles, but they hear it. And they say, hey, we need to address this problem. Why don't you all get people out of your community to help you meet this need? And when you know it, God supplies the people, the personalities, that this need for influencers comes to meet the need. One of the things that I have found that's profound in ministry is that now, hold on a second, I got I to pause for a second. Ministry, ministry, ministry. People refer to ministry as like a, like a, um, 
it's like an industry. Like, what do you want to do with your life? I want to be in ministry. I want to work in ministry. Y'all, that's not the point. Ministry is just life. Ministry is just being a follower of Jesus. Authentically loving people. One of the things that we're going to cover here tonight is this idea that you don't set out and architect your way into ministry. God calls you to ministry. And he doesn't just call you to ministry to be a pastor. He calls you to ministry as, a, as his child. To be a child of God means that you call people to God. You introduce them to God. That's the whole purpose of our lives. And so when we think about ministry, don't think that this is your church life separated from your real life. It is all of your life. This is one of the most profound difficulties that I've had as a pastor, is that before I became a pastor, it was my work life over here, and then what I really loved to do was just to be with my church family at Evergreen. And as God gave my heart more and more to Evergreen, what happened is that I began to pray, God, will you please release me from the obligation of trying to earn a living out here because I just want to give my heart fully to, my, to the people that I love. But one of the unintended things that I wasn't prepared for was when I, when I became a pastor, is that all of a sudden, I saw the world as God had designed it to be. Everything was the same. When I took a call from my best friend who was struggling, was that a pastor call or was that a best friend call? When I visited with my friends that I, that I had come to know to do life with, was I being a pastor or was I just being a friend? What I've realized is that to be an influencer, to be someone who, who God sets aside and gives their heart to his people, it means that you are just his child first. There's nothing different about being in ministry outside of just being a follower of Christ. So they name these guys, and they fit these qualifications, that they are full of the Holy Spirit, that they are um, good representatives of, of, of godliness. Now, the disciples knew that God had called them to teach and, and to refuse this, to, to get distracted by this calling. And so um, they, they have a specific set of skills that they outline. They want to make sure that the people understand exactly what they're looking for. Now, here's the thing. I also get a, a, a question quite often where people ask me, they say, hey, I want to serve somewhere. I want to do something. And... Um, I'll let you into my secret, okay? And those of you that have been around me for a long time know that this is how we do things. Um, if somebody comes and they ask me, for instance, I've had, I've, I've had a number of people over the years who have come and they've said, oh man, you know what? I would really love to teach at REACH. No connection to our community, no desire to build relationships. They just want to come and teach. They want to wear this microphone, they want to stand up on the stage, and they want to tell you about life. Welcome to the bottom of my list. One of the things that I have realized is that what the disciples are doing here is they are protecting their people. They're making sure that the, that the ones that are given influence, that are given a position of influence, that they are going to be good stewards of that influence. If someone stands up on this stage and they stand at this table and they deliver God's word to you, it's because I've been watching them for a very, very long time. That Taylor and I have been praying and seeking out wisdom to see someone's true heart. Back in the day when the first church first started, when persecution was, was a regular thing, there was a thing called um, a catechesis. Catechesis is a process that people would 
people would go through that um, would take about two years. And before they allowed someone, like right now to join a church is not a big deal, right? In our, for instance, Evergreen, you go through 101, you sign the covenant, okay, awesome, you're a member, right? In most, in most churches, it's like you walk down the aisle or you do something and then you're just a member, just like that, right? Not a big deal. Well, back in the ancient church, if you were a believer, there was very real liabilities that came with it, not just for you, but also for the church. We see this in the Eastern Bloc in Russia today and in China. They don't let just anybody become members of a church. You have to prove that you are a child of God. And they, the way that they do that is that they watch you for two years on average. The thing is, you can fake this for a little while. You can fake the Christian thing for six months, eight months, a year maybe. But after, after two years, extended period of time, the genuine love for the saints that the Word talks about in 1 John, the genuine fruits of the Spirit that are described in Galatians chapters 5 and 6, those things can't be faked. So by watching, the Spirit of God confirms the citizenship of people. And so what happens is that when people come to, come to us and they say, hey, I want to be involved in reach, the first response is, hey, you know what? I love that. That's great. God's called you to reach. God's called you to the young adult ministry. Come and do life with us. Just come and hang out. And we wait. One of, the, one of the hardest things that I did the first year in ministry was to watch and wait. I still remember some of the conversations that I had after that first year because the Lord began to stir my heart and give me eye, the eyes of a shepherd to see people that I could trust. Not because I'm insecure, not because I was afraid of being hurt, but because Lord, the Lord was teaching me that I needed to protect my people. And I remember conversations that I had. I said, hey, I've been watching you for a little while. And I see God's hand on you. You have a teachable spirit. You have been humbled. You have done enough hard things in your life that you learned to be humble. Will you come and do life with me? And over a period of years, God has taken those small conversations that were, that were um, the buds of long, watchful nights. And he's created something that is brilliant. What the apostles are doing here is they're saying, look, we need to look for these kinds of people. And they use a number of words to describe the qualifications. The first thing they say is that they need to be men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom. The word good reputation in Greek is the word marteo. That's where we get the word martyr. It literally means to give a testimony. These men, they needed to have an established reputation of expressing their faith with others. That They needed to be full of the Spirit. What this meant is that the Spirit of God should be evident in their life and that they would be full of wisdom. This is the Greek word sophia. And it means to have a, it has a number of meanings in different places, but in this particular application, it means to have a wide range of knowledge in human and godly things, as well as a skill in the management of affairs. These people, these deacons, is where we get the word, the, the word deaconos, these servants, would need to make sure that their testimony was a key part of their life. Sometimes pastors aren't able to use people because they are not good testimonies of the gospel. If you want to be used by God and you want to be involved in what God is doing, take care to your testimony. That's what Paul tells Timothy. Watch yourself. Be careful. We don't operate in, 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 a, in a glass case trying to protect ourselves to be perfect, 
But what we do is we live authentically in front of the world and we live our faith out. If you are faking it, if you are coming to church on, sun, on Sunday or on Tuesday and you are raising your hands and doing all the worship and then you're going and you're sleeping around and you're partying and you're doing stupid things, you are degrading the, the testimony of, of, of God in your life. You're being a hypocrite. And a godly pastor cannot let you serve because you are a bad testimony. I know, I know of people who uh, are in the ministry who make it a habit of going out on the weekends, totally disregarding their responsibility. Now, if you know me, if you know me well, I don't see there. I, I can look at the Bible and I can make I can make a case. We can have the conversation about alcohol all day long. But to blatantly disregard the responsibility of stewarding yourself and your reputation, this is a primary concern. The second thing is that they need to show that God's actively working in their lives. Sometimes people aren't able to be utilized because they don't show any sign of spiritual life. They may be available. They may show up to help. They may be able to move chairs, but they have no life in them. It's because they're not walking with God. They are a fake person. They are a shell of a Christian. They fake it. One of the things that I find humorous now is that People think that the Holy Spirit doesn't communicate with his pastors or with his, other, with his other children. This is a significant thing. The third thing is that they need to be a capable steward of the responsibilities that they, will, that they will be given. This is real practical administrative skill. The point of the apostles giving these responsibilities to the people is to ensure that the church would begin to take initiative to meet each other's needs and not wait for leadership. These servants or deacons would set the standard they wouldn't be super Christians. These would be just regular people. Regular people meeting the needs of others. But there's, a, there's an eternal significance to the influence of giving someone a title. A true servant is not going to chase a title. They're going to chase uh, allowing people to know God. The second thing here is that there's a place for influencers. Look at verses 5 and six, five through 6. So he says, in this word, please the whole congregation. They chose Stephen and they chose these other men. Stephen was a, a prime example. We'll, we'll get to know more about him next week when we look at his testimony. But he was known for being full of the Spirit. The original language here implies that Stephen was a faithful and blameless person in his reputation. He was committed uh, to, to faithfully live with integrity and holiness. And the other men were also Greek, meaning that they would know these widows and know their ins and outs. You know, one of the things that I find, you guys have heard my analogy of being a turtle on a fence post, but one of the things that I, I, have, I have found that's interesting is that the best leaders, the best servants, are the ones that are surprised when they have a seat at the table. I've, I've met a lot of people who want to be important, who want to have a title. They want to, to be in charge. But the best people to work with are the ones that don't think too highly of themselves. My old mentor, Gabe, used to say, don't buy into your own hype. Don't read your own press clippings. There's a, there was a, uh, a man in the third century. His name was Ambrose. Uh, Pastor Michael actually taught about him last Wednesday, if you want to hear more about his life. He's a fascinating person. He was the son of a, of a noble family in Rome um, in the fourth century, around three, the late 300s. And um, there was a division happening at that time between two people called the Arians, two groups of people called the Arians, not Nazis, Aryans, different. I'll explain that in a second. And the Nicaeans, okay? Um, what was happening at this point in history is that 
the two primary groups uh, in, in Christendom were the Arians. The Arians were followers of this guy named Arius. Arius began to, to teach in the, in the early parts of the 4th century that Jesus was the first created being. Okay, that essentially Jesus is one of, of the Son of God. He's part of a pantheon of gods. He took the Greek structure and he applied it to the Trinity. Um, he was condemned as a heretic. Okay, that's not true. But he had a significant following that, that plagued the church for many hundreds of years. Um, but the other side of it were, were called Nicaeans. And the Nicaeans, they held to what's called the Creed of Nicaea. Now, Arius caused such a stir in the church that the emperor of Rome at the time, Constantine, he actually paid for all of the pastors in the church to go to this city in modern-day Turkey called Nicaea and come up and hash this out. It was such a big deal. So the Nicaeans were the ones who um, stood together and they said, no, Jesus is God. So now you have these, so you have these two, two divergent groups, right? Well, the bishop of Milan, the, the uh, present-day city in Italy, um, he dies unexpectedly. And Ambrose was, was such a diligent servant of the people that he heard that they were trying to hash this out and they were getting upset, right? So he shows up just to make sure that everybody's taken care of. And before he knows it, everyone is chanting his name. Ambrose, Ambrose, Bishop Ambrose, Bishop Ambrose. He was a young man. He was not very well uh, experienced in theology. He hadn't even been baptized yet. And yet his reputation had preceded him to where both groups, who almost went to war with each other, supported him to lead the church. He's an example of someone who lived out faith and God raised him to significance. He actually continues to leave his fingerprints on the church even today. One of, one of the men that he had the greatest influence on was a guy named um, Augustine, who framed the church in his day and continues to frame the, uh, to, to aid the church and cultivate the church through his writings. Paul's point here is, it, or the apostle's point here, is that the people needed to designate choice men, specific men, to organize and administrate the, the meeting of these needs. And look at verse 7. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to multiply greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. A true servant doesn't just care about a title. They look for ways to remove obstacles to keep people from Jesus. The idea here is that, is that when, the, when the disciples looked at all of these, these possibilities, all these liabilities, they said, okay, we need men who are going to serve. And their number one job is going to be to remove the obstacles that keep people from God. Now notice, there's a specific role that, that influencers play. Look at these next couple of verses. Starting in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and some from Sicilia and, and Asia, rose up and were arguing with Stephen. But they were unable to oppose the wisdom and the spirit by, by whom he was speaking. Now, Stephen is going to go on to be a very significant person in the church, in the history of the church. But Stephen... Because of his faithfulness, so think about this. A need presents itself, and then God elevates Stephen because of his own reputation, and then he begins to do things that cause even more attention. He begins to do miracles. This is the first time in the Bible that we see non-apostles doing miracles. 
We start to see people's hearts be turned to God. It says that, that many of the, in verse 7, it said that many of the priests from the temple are becoming uh, obedient to the faith. You start to see Stephen full of grace and power. What this means is that uh, the spiritual condition of Stephen's heart was governed by the power of divine grace. In other words, what this means is that, is that Stephen saw people like God see them, saw them. Stephen had one motive, and that was to introduce people to Jesus. That was his number one job. He didn't care about being a deacon. He didn't care about a title. He didn't care about any of these things. He wanted to introduce people to Jesus. Can that be said about you? Can that be said about the, the future that you want for yourself? Do you want to be known, after everything all shakes out, as a person who introduces people to Jesus? Or do you want a title? Do you want money? Do you want a new car? Do you want a big house? Do you want a big family? What is it that you're, that you're shooting for? What do you want influence for? Do you want it to be able to cultivate your own little paradise? Or do you want to actually be obedient to what God has called you to be? Stephen was a man of genuine compassion who saw people with the grace of God, and he walked with God so closely that God performed miracles through him. That begs the question, is your service made powerful because of how you see people? Do you have the eyes of Jesus in how you see others? Do you look for ways to serve them? Do you cultivate influence by helping people get to know God better? Do you cause yourself discomfort for the sake of others to walk with God? After Stephen is given this divine influence, notice what happens. That there's opposition. The opposition from other Jews. Look at verse 9. He says, But some men who are called from the, uh, from the synagogue of the free men, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and were arguing with Stephen. These are people who are Greek Jews. These are from the same community that he's from. Sicilia is actually the same province where Saul is from. We'll see him for the first time in the next chapter. This would have been most likely the home synagogue of where Stephen was from. These are people that he would have known. After he's given the express responsibility of taking care of his Greek Jewish widows, the Greek unbelieving Jews begin to fight him. Because of the, but because of the wisdom that came from his relationship with God, they were not able to argue with him. Think about this. As you serve people, God gives you influence. As you help people succeed in their relationship with God, God gives you influence. That is going to come with opposition. Why? Because it magnifies the heart condition that you already, already possess. It magnifies your relationship with God so that when the opposition comes, people will see Jesus. We want to have a soft life, an easy life. That's not what Scripture calls for us. Remember, we looked at this before, that they didn't, they didn't pray for uh, traveling mercies or hedges of protection. They prayed for boldness and for confidence. The role of an influencer is to, is to be the source of courage for other believers. We have to recognize that, some things, that, that sometimes the way that God will reach our specific community is through us. Imagine that. You have Greek widows who have needs. Now we have Greek men who are serving them. Now the Greek secular culture is, is oppressing these same Greek Christians. Guess who's watching? The other Greek Jews that don't believe. They look at Stephen and say, wait a minute. Stephen knows biblical truth. Stephen takes care of, of widows. 
He takes care of women that aren't even related to him. Stephen is a servant. Stephen gives of himself. Stephen is a, is a righteous and holy man. Stephen has a good, good and holy reputation. And yet people are saying bad things about him. But this opposition doesn't stop right there. Look at, look at verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him, dragged him away and brought him into the Sanhedrin. And they put, a, put forward false witnesses who said, this man never ceases speaking words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this, this Jesus, the Nazarene, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin saw his face like the face of an angel. Let me explain that. This opposition for influencers, people will deceive others to get at you. The religious leaders here, they deceived people and they drug him in front of the Sanhedrin. This is the governing body of the time. These are the religious leaders. These are the same ones that put Jesus to death. These are the same ones who have beat uh, Peter and, and John. These are the same ones who have arrested all the, all the apostles. These are the ones who, who desperately want to hold on to power. These are the ones that want influence. And they're going after the people that have real influence. This uncovers a very important lesson. That real godly influence stirs up trouble. Because as we in our humanity, in our sinfulness, in our wickedness, try to hold on to our self-validation, when someone who is, is truly walking with God and God gives them influence, it's infuriating. Here's a question. Do you get angry when you see God using other people and not you? Do you get upset when other people rise in influence and you are passed over? Do you get mad at God when He doesn't put you in the game? I bet we could put ourselves in this situation. The question is what side of the table we would be sitting on. People are going to do whatever it takes to destroy godliness. And the people bringing accusations against Stephen were from his own community, which means they would have known him. They would have known his family. These are people who are being incredibly personal in how they attack him. But look at his response. This is the sweetest part. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin saw his face like the face of an angel. This language is similar to the language that's described when, it, when the Old Testament talks about Moses, when he would come down from the mountain after spending time with God. It says that his face would literally shine and glow in the dark. It freaked people out so much that he wore a veil over his face. Imagine. Imagine being so set on introducing people to Jesus being the kind of person that is known for taking obstacles out of the way for people's holiness. That when opposition comes against you, you don't have to say a word. Because the face of God is right in front of you. Stephen was not afraid. We'll see that next week. He is definitely not afraid. He is not anxious. He is not angry. 
He understands why he's here. The most profound thing here is that Stephen already settled who he was before this moment. One of the most profound aspects of godly influencers is not their abilities to defy evil authority. It's not even their courage. The most profound aspect of being a godly influencer is to display the character of God to the world. We live in a generation of believers who are excited at the thought of being thrown in jail. They're excited at the thought of persecution. They're excited at the thought of political fights, of going and pounding the pavement and getting their right person elected. Notice that Stephen didn't have to arrange any of that to get people's attention. He was simply a quiet, obedient servant. And yet when the moment came, God gave him influence. And as we'll see next week, he changed the course of history. God rose up this humble servant to show the world exactly what it meant to be godly. So here's a question. Are you the person right now in your walk with God that if a need arose, that your peers would say, yes, that person. They can be trusted with that influence. Their one motive is to introduce people to Christ. Their one motive is to take barriers away from people so they can walk with God. That person right there. There was another man who was a, uh, a leader back in the 19th century. His name was George W. Truett. You guys have probably heard his story. If you haven't, it's pretty awesome. He was just a humble servant. He was just a dude who liked to teach. He loved the Bible. He loved to talk about the Bible. And wouldn't you know it, people came to faith in Jesus because of him. Just by being him. When he was an undergraduate student at Baylor University, um, the preacher gets up on a Sunday morning. He says, well, tonight we're going to have an ordination service. There's a young man who has shown himself to be um, a student in the Word, a good steward of God's influence, and the elders have decided that we are going to ordain him to be a preacher, to be a pastor of the gospel. Okay, so George uh, decides he's going to go to church that evening, which, as he always does, and he's sitting in the back. They do the music. They worship. Everything is great. He's like, okay, preacher's going to start talking. Who, who we ordained it tonight? So the pastor gets up and he says... We've been watching this young man for a long time. And, um, you know, uh, the elders are, in, are unified that, they, that he needs to be in the ministry. And so to his own surprise, the pastor says, we have decided to ordain George W. Truett to the pastorate. I'm sorry? The elders get up and they walk to his seat and they escort him up front. <laughs> Imagine having that kind of reputation. Not seeking out influence, not wanting influence, not wanting to be the guy or the girl, not wanting to be important, not wanting to have a title. I just want to be a humble servant of Christ. That's all I want to be. I've done a lot of reflecting this last week. In the summer of 2018, some of you know this part of my story. I'm 
um, I was working in government at the time for a, in a pretty prestigious place. And um, I began to pray about what God wanted for me. And my mentor told me I needed to go take some time to think about it. And so I spent the afternoon on Turkey Mountain. I, I hiked every single trail that there was, like 11 or 12 miles. I can't remember how much it was. But I came down from Turkey Mountain with a message from God. Um, as ridiculous as that sounds. But God told me in 2018, July of 2018, that in the next season of my life, I would have the ability to, uh, to lead people. I'd never really done that before. And that I would have the opportunity to give my heart to his children. I did not know what that meant. And um, to my surprise, when I sat down with Pastor Michael that summer, I was asking him for teaching advice. How do I teach better? And finally, I told him I'd spent several months in First and Second Timothy, and I said, I, all I know is ministry. Everything else pales in comparison. I don't want to do anything else. I don't care anymore. I had worked for the most powerful people in the world. I had been in millionaires' offices, billionaires' offices. I had shaken hands with important people, taken my picture with, with important people. And it's like, this is dumb. I said, all I know is God's given my heart to his people. And if that means the people of Evergreen, awesome. That's, if I'm going to be transparent, that's exactly what I want. But if that's not what God wants from me, I'm okay with that. And he looked across the table and he said, okay. I've been waiting for you to say that for six months. And then he began to tell me that he had been watching me for many, many years. That the elders had been watching and praying and that God had put it on their hearts to do something called reach. You know, when the time comes and the pressure is on, we will either confirm our conviction or we will prove ourselves wanting. I want to close with a story. Fritz Kreisler was an Austrian-born American violinist and composer in the late 19th and earliest 20th centuries. He was one of the most noted violin masters of his day. Some would say that he was one of the greatest violinists of all time. And he was known for his ability to play the violin so well and with such personality that he was celebrated all around the world for his unique ability to move his audiences. One writer recounts a story from his many travels around the world. On one occasion, Fritz Kressler had several hours to spare between trains in a certain city. He decided to walk around and see the sights, and he stopped in the front of a music store. And he saw in the window something which he wanted to purchase. He went into the store and laid his violin, ca violin case with his name on it on the counter. The shopkeeper saw the name on the case and thought that the famous musician's violin had been stolen by this man. He excused himself and going back to the office called the police. Soon they came and accused this man of stealing Chrysler's violin. He insisted that he was Chrysler and they would not believe him. Finally, he said to the shopkeeper, Do you have one of Fritz Chrysler's recordings in your shop? Yes, replied the man. Please play this number for me, said Chrysler, and then I will play the same number on my violin. 
The record was put on the machine, and they listened to the music, which had been recorded by Chrysler, and he picked up his violin and played the same number. The shopkeeper and the policeman stood in amazement. They knew now that this was Chrysler, so they apologized to him profusely and they let him go. You see, this performance measured up to his profession. That is what we need today. We need, uh, we profess to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God help us to live up to our profession, even as the deacons of the early church did. I don't have a massive call to action for you, but I do want you to think about this. Are you living your life in a way to where if a need arose, you would be the first person on someone's lips? Are you living in a way that brings honor to the Savior that you profess to love? Do you serve His children with a genuine care? Do you have a deep compassion and love for the people of God? When others need you, do you search for ways to remove obstacles for their godliness? Or do you look for excuses? If someone needs something, are you the type of person that has a ready yes? Or do you look for any reason to not be inconvenienced? As we go out today from here, I believe that our generation will be the generation with a ready yes. That we would be those who would see others as God sees them. And that we would do everything that we could to remove the obstacles that are in the way of their godliness. Leadership is influence through service. By helping others win and find Jesus, we will change the world by the grace of God. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor to young adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.